You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. China's Long March to Market Authoritarianism by Scott McDonald. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, though I have retired, uh, I do maintain an affiliation with the DOD institution. I should say that any opinions I express today are my own and do not represent those of the U.S. government. That being said, uh, I... I am a retired Marine Corps officer who spent a lot of time looking at China, and many people here know that, and so I cannot go a day at Ocon without being asked what's going on in China. And uh, you know, the fact that there's some confusion is understandable, right? Because if you look at the media or academia or even our policymakers, you just hear a whole bunch of sound bites. They're becoming capitalists. They're becoming socialists. They're liberalizing. They're clamping down. A whole bunch of concretes, and it's hard to discern sometimes exactly what the details are. So today, I hope to provide you with a few simple principles that will make it easier for you to interpret what's going on in the PRC, change those concretes into something you can understand. So the first question to ask is, why do we keep getting China wrong? In 2018, a couple well-known China scholars, uh, both now working in the National Security Establishment, uh, published an article in Foreign Affairs and basically admitted we were wrong. We did not understand China. And um, which is great on one sense, hey, we realize we need to fix ourselves, but they didn't really go into specifics on what we needed to do. So my theory is we keep getting the PRC wrong for two reasons. First of all, we don't think in terms of principles. We tend to identify a lot of concretes that are going on and then attempt to interpret exactly what China is today at this moment. And we're not really stepping back and looking at the big picture. This is influenced partly by the second problem, that we tend to see what we want to see in China. Um, and usually that's some version of ourselves. Right? We think how we would uh, develop their economy if we were sitting in Beijing. They probably want that. What would our policy be towards North Korea? They probably want that. Economic liberty? They definitely want it. We do. But because we're seeing it through our lens, it's very difficult to understand what's going on there to extract the proper principles. So let's start by looking at what the People's Republic of China is. It is, in essence, a party state. You'll notice on the, uh, the chart here that there are two parallel systems, a party system and a state system. The darker shading indicates power, and you can tell which one is more powerful. Um, and though these are parallel, they're not equal, and it's actually more than that, because this chart suggests there's influence going from the party to the state, but the uh, party is actually thoroughly integrated across the state. Two-thirds of their national legislature, party members. All the key billets of the state council, their cabinet, party members. The People's Liberation Army is a party army. It reports to the party, not the state, and all the officers are party members. Even down in the ministries, which you see here is very relatively unimportant, you know, if the foreign minister happens to be the chief party official in that ministry, then yeah, he's the top guy, he makes the decisions, such as they are. But if his deputy is actually the top party guy, he's the top person in that ministry. The party rules throughout and directs how government policy goes. In fact, you'll notice a small block down here, some SOE chiefs, that's state-owned enterprises, all key sectors of the economy are still run by state-owned enterprises. And although the scope of these, their percentage of GDP controlled by them, has reduced, they're in key sectors and they have a lot of weight. In fact, this is only a, a smattering. Right? The, the four largest banks in the PRC are all state-owned. Right? Both major mobile telephone companies, et cetera, et cetera. And they all have party committees there as well. Of course, it's not just the state-owned enterprises. In the private sector, the party also has committees within each of these organizations. And increasingly, the CEOs of these organizations are party members. So throughout the government and the economy, it is the party that rules. And that's important to keep in mind, because when you ask the national policy of the United States, there's some sense of what does the government want, how does it react with the populace. When you ask about the national interest and policy of the PRC, you're asking what's important to the party. That's the core actor. So now we know what China is, let's move on to principles. As uh, Ayn Rand told us, in order to really understand, you have to be able to abstract, step back, 
organize your knowledge into principles that you can apply to understand existence. Now, not our principles necessarily, so you might not agree with all of these, but the principles that work for understanding the PRC. And the first is power. Now, this ultimately goes back to a classical Chinese uh, concept of hierarchy and the fact that society is morally organized in a hierarchy and that somebody has to be on top telling the others what to do. Now, in the PRC, we know that is going to be the party. Their position must be maintained not only because, well, my career and life kind of depends on it, but it is moral that we should be in charge and running things. There's no other way for China to work. The second principle I'm going to offer you is paranoia, which might strike you as a little bit of an odd principle, but this goes back to another classical Chinese philosophical concept of situational potential, or sure. And it's this idea that within any given situation, there is a natural course of development that will ensue. So if a threat, a small threat, were to pop up and start to grow, there's a natural course that that's going to take, like a river. If I go up into the Himalayas, I can change the entire course of the Yangtze River with a few boards and a few stones. If I wait till I'm down at Wuhan, it's very difficult to change. So that threat, I need to get in there as early as possible and stop it. As a result, the CCP is highly paranoid about any particular threat that's out there. And you'll see the way they react to disturbances that might turn into alternate sources of authority. The final principle is pragmatism. I know you're saying, Scott, you just told me to think in principles, now you're telling me pragmatism. The key point here is that in the economic realm, the CCP has no formal ideology it is trying to follow. Yes, I know you've heard they're communist, but that's long ago, right? We don't care in the economic realm what we do. It must serve principle number one, right? It is ultimately about power. And so in the economic realm, we do what we have to do. Kind of a rough ideology. We got power as our goal over there. There's some paranoia, there's threats. And we're going to, by feeling the stones carefully, do what we have to do to cross the river, as Deng Xiaoping said. We're going to try something. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. And today's economic system, the market authoritarianism that a lot of commentators are using today, is not an ideology. It is not even a goal. It is the result of the PRC, I'm sorry, the CCP, muddling through history using these three principles to end up at today. And to demonstrate that, we're going to take a little walk through history. My long march to economic development. So the long march, of course, was 1934-1935. The Communist Party was fleeing the Nationalist Party, West and the North doing whatever they had to do to survive a long, arduous march that has ended up uh, a piece of lore in, in communist history. Uh, I have over in the uh, top right my little uh, bar chart there, uh, just a relative gauge of market and authoritarianism. No numbers behind that. This is just my interpretation of relative strength and weakness. And we're going to walk through the history of the People's Republic of China hitting our three principles, power, paranoia, and pragmatism. So let's start at the founding. In 1949, the Chinese people stand up, but the economy is impoverished. They've gone through two halves of a civil war, uh, the Second World War, there was the Sino-Japanese War there. The economy's devastated. Wasn't that great to start with. What are we going to do? Our Soviet friends have answers. So they're going to come in, build industries, train us how to use them. They're going to tell us how to organize a government. They're going to show us what they've been doing in terms of collectivization, and we're going to lap it up because they have some answers and we're going to use them. We're going to see what works. Um, they're also, because they're highly concerned with their own power, with ideological campaigns. And there are many during this period. I'm going to highlight two, the three antis and the five antis. So these anti-campaigns, the first one is aimed at party members, anti-corruption, anti-waste, anti-bureaucratism. And it's saying, hey, there are people in the party that are causing negative uh, impacts on the economy, and, and we need to stop that because they're ruining things. Five antis, also aimed at the economy, but more at, at the private side of life, and it's anti-bribery, anti-tax evasion, embezzlement, anti-waste of government resources, anti-theft, very focused on stopping things that are a threat to the party. However, there are disparities in economic development that cause problems. 
the um, uh, Soviet help, largely focused on industry, of course, is taking place in the cities. And the cities are starting to get better quicker than the agricultural area. Unfortunately, the agricultural area is the source of Mao's power, right? He was a peasant leader. He, he made the Chinese Communist Party a peasant party, and, and now they're unhappy. And as a method of control, the party has instituted the household registration, or HUCO system, where everybody is assigned to a town based on where they were born, their schooling, their health, their jobs are tied to that. And if you move, you lose these things. So people, peasants especially, are now tied to the farm. They're watching other people get better, and they're not, and they're not happy. Meanwhile, intellectuals who supported the revolution are now feeling like the party's not listening to them. You know, I, I helped you. I had these good ideas. I think I have ways that you can do this better. And the party's not listening. So there's growing discontent. So one of the things they do to try to, to head off this discontent is something called the 100 Flowers Campaign. And the party goes out and says, OK, everybody, intellectuals especially, you have some good ideas and you can help us. So tell us what we're doing wrong. We want to get better. Now, as you can imagine, there were crickets. <laughs> you have an authoritarian party going, yeah, tell us what we're doing wrong. Not a lot of people wanted to speak at first. But over the course of, uh, of several months, they start coaxing people, and then they get a flood. And you start getting these large character posters where intellectuals are posting all the things the party could do better, right? How could we collectivize better? How could we leverage uh, individuals better? Hey, this is great. This is wonderful. How could the party do its job better? Well, wait a second. That's not what we meant exactly. You're now attacking the party directly. And now they've got all these intellectuals up and going, and they're excited, and they're criticizing the party. So we have to purge them. So we, need, we needed that, uh, that, uh, those ideas. We thought we wanted them, but now that's a threat to us. So now you're going to jail. And tens of thousands of people are punished, exiled, stripped of their class standing. So now they have to eat their living by. Things are not good for the intellectuals. Um, so, but Mao is still dissatisfied because he sees his revolution is bogging down. And to Mao, power and continuous revolution were synonymous. That is how we run a country. That is how we get things done. We must have continuous revolution. If we don't keep this going, we lose our legitimacy. We lose our program. So we need a campaign. And we're going to take a great leap forward. And there's a couple parts of this. Further collectivization, they had already started. We're going whole hog. Matter of fact, the Soviets are saying there's going to be a, an interim period. They can't reach uh, communism tomorrow. We're going to reach it tomorrow. We're going now. Okay? Um, he's also very proud. He wants to be the strong, great country. So he makes a boast. We're going to surpass the United Kingdom's steel production in 15 years. And I'm going to prove this to you. It's a, it's a proof of our power. Of course, what do we have to do that with? The tool that they've used in classical China for centuries is mass mobilization of labor. So we're going to get the peasants out there, and we're going to get this done. Focus on steel production. Right? They tell the peasants, go build backyard furnaces, contribute to the revolution, and melt down any steel you have and make steel. So peasants, instead of farming, are building furnaces, throwing in their woks, their cooking utensils, their plows, oops, and creating steel very low quality steel that you wouldn't want to use for anything, but they're trying to meet production quotas. And if they don't meet, meet them, they say they meet them. And then they say, well, we're building the country. We have infrastructure projects. Ah, we have labor. OK, peasants, come on. Dig a canal, build a dam, build a road. Not spending as much time on the farm as they should. Agricultural production starts to fall. OK, it can't be our policies. It's pest. Pest must be the problem. They're the threat. So mobilize the peasants to get rid of, threat, of pests. And of course, you know, you pay a kid a few cents to go catch a rat. That's kind of cool. But they mobilize the peasants to go stand in the fields and wave fans so that the sparrows could not land and eat the seeds. This was so effective, there are cases of sparrows falling out of the sky dead from exhaustion. Right? However, while it was effective at that, the peasants are not farming. And it turns out the sparrows were not only eating the seeds. They were eating a lot of pests that ravaged crops. 
the sparrows are now gone, and agricultural production plummets, mixed with uh, uh, you know, uh, some bad weather, and what we get is mass famine, and essentially Mao kills 30 to 40,000 people of starvation. So, millions, I'm sorry, millions, thank you. 30 to 40 million people uh, die of famine. So, Marshal Peng Dehuai is a, uh, a famous marshal in the Revolution, Korean War, and he says, this is, this is gonna mess us up, right? If we don't fix this, it's gonna undermine our power. I have to tell Chairman Mao, because maybe he's not getting all the information, and I need to make sure he knows what's going on. So he writes a long essay, he goes to Mao, he says, dear Chairman, we need to fix this. We need to make sure that this isn't a threat to us. Mao sees a threat, all right. It's Peng Dehuai. So he purges Peng, Sen uh, uh, banishes him, and uh, then Mao says, but you know, things aren't going so well. Um, you know what? You guys got this. Uh, I need to go check out the countryside. I need to work on writing my philosophy. Um, I'm retiring to the second line. You guys have this. Right? Not my fault. Bye. So he kind of leaves the scene for a bit. And as he asked, some people who have some ideas uh, try economic reform. And they realize that the cultural, I'm sorry, yeah, the Great Leap Forward is undermining their position. It's, it's damaging confidence in the party. We need to change something. And uh, Deng Xiaoping comes on the scene and says, there were some errors with communism practice. Communism's still good, still the goal, but we made a few mistakes. So we need to try some things. And a lot of experimentation goes on at this point. A lot of it not necessarily party-directed. Uh, at the top, like a local cadre is like, all oh, my people are starving, we've got to do something. Uh, tell you what, this plot over here, families can farm on their own. And anything over the quota that you uh, produce, it's yours. Do what you want with it. And there's a lot of little experiments like this, and there's a willingness at the top to kind of let the situation go as it needs to go, and permissiveness. Because we need to let the economy go, so we're going to just let them try. Permissiveness, not so much direction, just feeling the stones. And at the party level, there's a shift away from a focus on ideology. We're no longer a revolutionary party trying to implement a program. We are a ruling party trying to govern a state. So there's a shift in focus there, and the economy begins to turn and come around. Of course, Mao never went away completely. And Mao now sees that this is undermining his revolution again. You guys are messing things up. You're going, you're static, you're bureaucratized. We need revolution. So Mao comes roaring back and he says, uh, we need to seize back control from the bureaucratized party, restore the revolution, restore my power, right? Which is really what this is about. And what, what tool do I have? I have mass mobilization. So the Red Guards uh, start to rise. Mao calls them out. He calls the youth and he says, I want you to go out and fix things. And by that I mean, quote, bomb the headquarters. They literally tear down the party structure, and replace it with uh, revolutionary committees, loyal to Mao, because we need to get rid of these alternate sources of authority, including the, the uh, bureaucratized elements of the party, but anything old, right? So Confucianism comes under attack because it provides an alternate moral code. Traditional Chinese untouchables, like you know, the, the great paragons of Chinese morality. Teachers, we're gonna criticize them. They're an alternate source of authority. Parents, we're gonna criticize them. They're an alternate source of authority. And this leads to mass disruptions of the economy and society. Industry is disrupted because everyone's out campaigning against whatever the campaign of the day is. Schools are shuttered because they're dangerous. People might learn things that are unhealthy. Close the schools send the people down to the countryside to learn what it's really like to be a revolutionary. And the government collapses, replaced by uh, communist cells, revolutionary cells, not the traditional party, loyal to Mao. Some interesting uh, externalities here. There are places where, because you have these smart people who are sent down to the farms, that agricultural production actually improves in places because there's smart people like, hey, I'm here and I gotta help the revolution. But overall, the economy is stagnant because they're focused on the campaigns. Their Mao is focused on what I need to do to stay in power.
It gets so bad, though, that Mao actually sends the military in to get control. There's too much chaos. Um, this happens uh, two years into the Cultural Revolution. Calm things down, a little more control. But the stagnation and the campaigns continue. There's no focus on the economy. So the party doesn't care about the economy. Mao doesn't care about the economy, so nothing's going on. Of course, Mao dies in 1976, and we move towards reform and opening. There's actually a bit of an interregnum between 76 and 78, where uh, Hua Guofeng takes over. He and Mao kind of spar, I'm sorry, he and Deng kind of spar a little bit, but Deng wants to return power to the party, specifically against uh, ideologues, against demagogues, and uh, these, these revolutionary committees. I want order and the party. In this reg interregnum, the democracy movement springs up. And this, this starts off as people posting big character posters again about certain things that need to be fixed. Again, not necessarily attacking the party. Uh, how can we make things better? We're the intellectuals. We have ideas. Cultural revolution hurt us, and we have some better ideas. Deng actually encourages this, partly because it's undermining his rival, who is trying to take on the mantle of Mao. And then the intellectuals start criticizing the party directly. We need a new system of governing. The party is messing this up. OK, too much. You're a threat. You're done. And uh, Deng crushes them. Um, blames Hua, but Deng crushes them. But we still need to fix the economy because things are bad. So our legitimacy has been damaged. We heard it at the democracy wall movement. People want more uh, economic development. They want a better life. So they say, you know what, that immediately transitioning to communism idea, not so great. We're going to pursue socialist modernization. In other words, we claim to be a socialist country. We need to modernize the economy, focus on the economy. And so they take several steps to focus on the economy itself, starting with the four modernizations. We're going to modernize agriculture, industry, science and technology, and the military. And those are rank ordered, military's last, and doesn't actually come for, for several years. But we're going to take several actions to improve these things. In agriculture, we have the household um, responsibility system, which is a formalization of some of that experimenting that went on in the earlier reform era. We're actually going to say, OK, peasant family number two, uh, this plot of land, we'll lease it to you for five to 15 years. You can do whatever you want. We just need you to meet this grain quota. And beyond that, sell whatever you want to sell. So they can now make a little money, do what they want to do. In industry, they institute special economic zones. Four cities uh, along the coast, um, are they start lifting uh, restraints on business, specifically on foreign investment. And foreign companies come in, invest, build factories, produce things with many benefits to the regime. First of all, there's money coming in, money that's now touching their populace and making things better. Two, they're learning about uh, modern systems of manufacture and marketing and they're incorporating these ideas into how they do business. And third, um, when things go wrong, it's not the party's fault. It's those evil capitalist companies that are here, and they messed up. So the party benefits tremendously from this, as do, does the average Chinese, because the economy starts improving because of it. Deng also encourages ideological flexibility. We're here to, to make things good. Doesn't matter how we do it. Doesn't matter if a cat is black or a cat is white. As long as it catches mice, it is a good cat, says Deng. In other words, I don't care if that is called capitalist or socialist. We're going to do what has to be done to fix the economy, seeking truth from the facts on the ground and what the actual situation is. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this starts proceeding apace, but it starts to have some unintended consequences. The economy is getting better. We start backing off and letting the, the market do things more. Um, however, prices had been held down by party diktat and uh, party or state subsidies. And so now prices start to rise just as um, uh, incomes are starting to rise, the classic problem of rising expectations. You have a similar thing going on with the intellectuals who are now given more freedom to, to uh, get in intellectual exchanges with each other, with foreigners. They're, they're at least giving audience with the party more, though not always listened to, and they're getting anxious. We could do so much better if you would just listen to us. We can do better. Come on, party. And people start to get frustrated. And then the demonstrations happen on Tiananmen Square. 
there have been demonstrations on Tiananmen Square before. There have been demonstrations crushed before. But these are of a different character. First of all, the students who started these began by organizing their own student organizations. Prior to this, all student organizations are party directed. Each school has a student association that the party essentially runs. They say, we don't want that. We're forming our own. Not only are we forming our own, we're the future, and party, you better listen to us. We want meetings, and we want you to do what we say. They're an alternate source of authority. Party starts to get worried. Then other parts of society start following them. Right? Healthcare workers start showing up in mass to the demonstrations. There is a march by journalists, who all technically work for the party, march in support of the students. And then the workers start marching, and they start forming autonomous trade unions. Up to this time, just like student associations, all trade unions must be party-directed. They start forming their own. This is a threat to the party. And then they start explicitly using the language and symbols of Western democracy. And here's the goddess of democracy staring down Mao, stating explicitly, there's a better way to do it than you're doing at party. Of course, this is too much for the party to take. And a few days later, they move in and clear the square by force. Now, there were a lot of people that died on that day. Uh, we don't know exactly how many. Interestingly, they weren't all students. There were quite a few people, local Beijingers, who tried to stop the military coming in. And they did once, effectively, a few days before this. But a lot of the very violent pictures you see was the people of Beijing standing up. This scared the heck out of the uh, regime. And of course, Tank Man stood up and stopped tanks, showing the world just what one man can do. Um, we, we think he's dead. He was a worker, not a student. So Tiananmen scares the regime. This is the biggest threat they've faced. And there's a bit of a backlash my slide not go? There's a bit of a backlash, and conservatives start cracking down um, absolutely on um, uh, political expression, but also on the economy. And it looks like the economic reforms are going to be rolled back as well. But you know, communism is dead. Long live the CCP. We need to find some way to, to make this happen. And Deng Xiaoping comes back out. He's getting old at this time. He ordered the crackdown. And he makes a southern tour. And he says, you know what? He visits all those special economic zones and says, the economy is still important. We have to develop the economy. We need this to be a rich country, which we need to survive. And so they increase foreign investment, allow the market to influence more, just being a little more careful with the way they raise things this time. They also are clamping down on discussion and on uh, dissent so they can make changes a little more freely, whereas they were allowing a little more dissent pre-Tiananmen, and rising expectations got the better of them. Um, entrepreneurs start entering the party, and of course, they join the World Trade Organization, which one of the key aspects of that is it opened up more export markets by reducing quotas. And so uh, now companies are moving into mainland China in mass in order to produce things. Foxconn is a Taiwan company that produces all your, or used to produce all your mobile, your iPhones um, with US technology, uh, Taiwan chips, Korean screens, and some Chinese workers getting paid for their labor. However, we have to maintain political control. So you see the rise of the Great Firewall, but also a huge emphasis on pushing positive news about the party and negative news about the West through the press. Um, to a public that are voracious consumers of news. Um, you also see increased fear about any potential um, alternate sources of authority. And in April of 1999, Falun Gong, which had previously just been a, you know, a people who do martial arts for health purposes and had previously been recognized as legitimate, um, they fall out of favor with the government. They manage to organize and have 10,000 practitioners show up across the street from the party uh, residential compound, and the party knew nothing about it. Scared them like crazy. This is why Falun Gong was cracked down upon. Not because they did some martial arts or had crazy religious ideas, but because they can organize. Because they're an alternative source of authority and power, and that frightens them. So now, 
we're focusing on increasing the economy, holding things down, and Xi Jinping comes to power. So Xi Jinping has his China dream, which I argue is both a means of control and uh, a bit of uh, pragmatic uh, moving the economy around. The idea here is that China wants to be rich. The people want to be rich and prosperous, a moderately prosperous socialist economy by mid-century. But only the party can get us there. So we are going to do a lot of things economically, but they serve the party's goals of power. The party is the one who will make your life better. And so they allow market to provide some information, but for important decisions, it is still the party that gets to call the shots, which leads to some interesting uh, uh, mistakes. End of last year, severe coal shortages in, uh, in China. They were really afraid people were going to freeze in the winter. They were having blackouts and such. So the party uh, orders the uh, energy companies to buy up all the coal they can uh, at all costs. Um, something's going to happen here on the spot market for coal. Prices are going to go through the roof, which surprises the party. And they get very upset, and they call people and say, we're going to punish you and arrest you because you're driving up the prices. So there's a bit of a disconnect there between how the market actually works and what we want to happen, which demonstrates the difficulty of command economy, right? How that doesn't work. But it also shows the party's uh, mindset, right? We, we want to get in there and make it happen the way we want it to happen. The, we'll let the market go as long as it's no threat or it helps us. But the moment that it doesn't help us, we're going to clamp down. And they do it partly with this little red phone, which is a um, separate telephone network just among senior party members. Uh, not that surprising, but state-owned enterprises, the CEO or the party secretary has one of these, even some private enterprises. And when that phone rings, you better answer and you better do what they tell you to do. So they control the economy through these red phones at key, uh, key organizations. Um, of course, she has a lot of fear of alternate power centers. And a lot of questions I get asked today about the way the economy is being run, I think the, this idea of paranoia and these alternate power centers helps explain some of it. For example, Jack Ma, right? Jack Ma builds this company, uh, you know, China actually uses it to brag, look how good we're doing, right? We're better than other people. He's making money, he's providing people services. This is all good. So why would they purge him? Or, you know, disappear him for a while? Well, when people start asking what Jack Ma is gonna do to fix the economy, instead of what Xi Jinping is gonna do to fix the economy, the party has a problem. There's also a case where, um, now, with you know, a bit of ideological flux, the party has no real ideology besides power. There's a group of students who are organizing the young Marxists, and they start going out and chanting Marxist slogans and praising Marxism, even praising Xi Jinping in the process. However, only the party is the source of Marxist dogma. So these students start disappearing. Just recently, you know, feminism, the Me Too movement, uh, happened a little bit in... Uh, in China, but it was, you know, kind of co-opted a little bit. Uh, these women had the gall, there were five of them at the beginning, to stand in public with a sign that suggested that hitting me does not show affection and swearing at me does not show love. This was very threatening to the party because lots of people started rallying behind them and praising them, and they were spreading like wildfire across the, uh, the Internet there. They were setting policy on violence towards women. That's not their job, that's the party's job. These women start disappearing. And then most recently, uh, the, uh, the party outlaws um, uh, online education, right? All these people who are teaching English to young middle class uh, uh, Chinese kids over the internet, we shut that down. We don't want foreigners teaching English. Now, probably the real reason is, you know, objectivist Jack Crawford was one of these, and he was spreading Rand's ideas probably, right? But uh, unfortunately, Jack's not here today. But um, uh, Also, it's an alternative power center. And now the money is going to support curriculum not approved by the party, teaching things in the way that the party doesn't want them taught. The party is also afraid that the middle-class parents are getting upset that they're having to spend all this money. 
However, they're finding ways to spend all that money anyway because they want their kids to get ahead. But we have to shut down anything, even teaching kids, kids English, which is part of the national curriculum, even teaching kids English must be shut down if it provides an alternative source of authority, something outside the party that is influencing the way life is lived. So all those have to go away. But the party is also frightened that their developing development window is closing due to first the one-child policy and now um, the, the lack of interest in having more than one child, if any children at all, population is uh, going to peak here shortly and start declining, but it's already getting old. So they have a huge old population with not enough young people to produce in order to take care of them. Meanwhile, all that great economic activity that was happening in the special economic zones, which were later expanded much more broadly, was built on cheap labor. Now wages are rising because the populace is getting more wealthy. They're pricing themselves out of the market, and that factory uh, labor has already begun to move to Southeast and South Asia. Their economic system is no longer producing, and they failed to move up the value chain. So the party is dreadfully afraid that they're going to miss their chance to become the top dog economically and politically in the world. We're going we're to get old before we get rich, is how it's often, uh, often phrased. But really, it's about we're going to miss our chance for power if we don't take it soon. Because all the indicators are starting to turn against us. The economy is slowing. Fortunately, we have the power, so we're going to force the economy to innovate. And that's one of the ideas behind uh, Made in China 2025. If it's not going to happen naturally, we're going to force it to happen. And so they're, they're trying to make a lot of specific industries that they think are key. Leapfrog over the West. Last time we used that word leap, it didn't work out so well. Anyway, we're going to leapfrog over the West to the next level of development and prove that we are the power to, to lead the world forward. Um, she has a great plan to do this. Um, we're going to steal the next level of innovation from the West and thereby jump over them. I'm not sure how that works, but that's part of the plan. It's actually written in that document. So we've now traced history there from uh, uh, the start of the PRC to now on how these principles have influenced the party's control of the economy. So what is it a march toward? Well, ultimately, it's about power, and the party is seeking that power. So whatever we're doing in the economy, it's about power. Second, as they've done this, they've witnessed a range of threats from all different uh, parts of the society and the economy, and they have to respond to them. They're paranoid about what these things might do, and so they're going to do whatever works because there's really no ideology when it comes to the economy. They're just trying to get by. Sometimes that means the market, but the hammer is already ready, and this is the key really for anything in the PRC, the whim of the party is always lurking in the background, going to determine what actually happens. So looking over uh, the past several decades, where are we now? What have we marched towards? Well, we've kind of stumbled our way by focusing on power, using the economy when it's uh, useful, to what many analysts call market authoritarianism. But to me, when really it's, the hammer's always in the background and subject to the whim of the party, it just looks authoritarian to me. The market is just window dressing. So that's where I think we are today. That's how I think we got there. And hopefully, by understanding these three principles and being able to apply them, you can look at whatever else happens next in the PRC and evaluate it for what it is. Thank you very much, and I'll happily take your questions. Scott, an outstanding presentation. I'm John Cohart, and uh, this is the first time I've ever asked a question in the forum to be quick enough. It's <laughs> tough. Um, <clears throat> so there's, I'm in DOD. I'm, I'm uh, actually a defense contractor now, uh, career military. There's so many people in DOD that look at China with sort of envy of how they can, they're streamlined, they can build their military, they can produce products much faster than us. And, uh, you know, we have to contend with things like, oh, Congress and appropriating money and following policies. Do you subscribe? And what, what are your thoughts on that idea that China is just going to overwhelm us militarily 
because they're so fast and so clean. I look at them in a tremendous bureaucracy and all kinds of problems. Um, so I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Sure. Well, I, I don't subscribe to the fact that their uh, authoritarian system is going to help. Um, yes, they have uh, made many rapid advances in the previous decades, but they're not starting from the same place that a lot of other states have started from, right? They are leveraging technology and innovations that are already out there, which is one of the reasons they're able to produce so quickly. Um, does, does a streamlined system lead to occasional efficiencies? Yes, but because of the nature of that system, which is not just streamlined, it's you will do X, it actually cramps innovation and it cramps individual thought and therefore it cramps the ability to come up with interesting solutions to novel problems. And they are seeing this over and over again. And so while there are plenty of industrious and hardworking people in the People's Republic of China, you are not seeing the same level of actual innovation going on there. And they're struggling with this. They're identifying this, which is one of the reasons they're trying to force it in 2025. Why are we not moving up the, the value ladder? And so this actually frightens them. I'm not saying our system is perfect. Our, our, our uh, procurement system has lots of problems. But what our procurement system benefits from is the ideas in the populace and the ideas in the innovators. And so in the long run, I'm confident in that regard. Next. Um, along similar lines to that, I'm, I've seen a lot of this kind of uh, almost like glorification of China. You know, people, um, you know, being like, oh, well, look how, you know, well they can respond to this and they can build so fast. And, and, um, and I, I'm wondering, you know, and there's, uh, who's the, the guy who, the, the economist, um, I'm forgetting his name right now, but, but you know, the, the idea that China's the next world power, you know, and, and that sort of stuff. Where does that come from? Like, is that planted? Like, is China, I'm sure that China's trying to push that narrative, but why are there so many Americans who sort of subscribe to that? Because the more that I learn about China, the more I sort of, sort of fall in line with this idea that, you know, evil is impotent, right. and, and the fact that they don't have freedom is actually a major setback for them, and they are actually weak relative. So there's a mix of things going on there. Yes, there is this perception that, uh, you know, China has risen, and China is the next great power, and it, it's pushed in several places. Absolutely, the PRC and the party is pushing it itself. Um, you know, simple phrases like new type great power relationships. What's that mean? It means uh, now it's just the United States and us, right? And they started calling it the G2, or the group of two. They're pushing to the world through their narrative that they have risen, right? And of course, the, uh, the 5,000 years of civilizational history proves we're superior and all that. But it's also being pushed by, you know, frantic media in the United States, right, which, which sees something going on and, oh my God, look, they're becoming so great and so strong. Um, for many years, you saw this constant refrain in the uh, press and especially the economic press about how the United States economy is completely dependent on China, right? Completely false, by the way, right? Uh, PRC economy is completely dependent on export-led growth at the moment, right? Um, but the narrative was pushed and it's been accepted. So it's in our newspapers all the time, partly just our own reporting, partly out of fear, partly out of uh, misunderstanding, and, and partly the PRC is pushing it. Interesting. Um, Next. Uh, go ahead, have, you can go back in line. Next question. Yeah, we have a question from the chat from Grant uh, Parker. He asks, should American businesses take a different approach to dealing with China, given what you have said? Should we be doing business in China? So, there's a wonderful panel this afternoon that's going to go into that much more deeply. Uh, myself and, and Adam Mossoff will, will be on. Um, the short answer is, well, let me, let me put it this way. First of all, we have a tendency lately in the United States to think that the U.S. government should determine what companies do vis-a-vis -vis China. And I disagree with that. There are limited cases of items of national security that we should vigorously control. Um, but otherwise, it's not my business what that company does. I have some advice to those companies that if you do business in the PRC, um, you're, you're throwing away your IP, and uh, you're ultimately not going to make as much money as you think you're going to make, and there's a good chance you lose a lot more. And this is based on what foreign companies have struggled with there for, for decades. So uh, my personal advice is 
don't do it. <laughs> but I, I do not want the government necessarily telling individual companies where and how to invest their money. Next. Do you think that China is exporting uh, organizedly his, its ideology to the rest of the world? And if it is, in how many ways? If, if they're exploit, exporting their ideology? Yes. Okay. Um, organizedly. Yeah. So their ideology, right, as I've alluded to, is a lot more focused on power than anything else right now. And so they, they are um, cheerleading for this idea that um, authoritarian political systems produce better, right? Partly our first question, right? That we have control of things and we can make things happen. And more specifically, that that liberal ideology in the West causes chaos and disruptions. Just look at all the problems in the United States, right? That's their ideology. Uh, I mean, that's, that's their message. So <clears throat> what they want is not necessarily a whole bunch of clones around the world. Um, they got out of the business of that several decades ago. They found it unprofitable to try to recreate little uh, Maoist organizations around the world. What they want is for people to look to them as the guiding light, right? As the source of the way forward. So they're, they're advertising and evangelizing their own prowess as much as anything else. And as the rightful rising power, who, based on their success, should set the rules of international commerce going forward. So are they actively promoting an ideology? I don't think so. There's a, uh, an idea of a Beijing consensus out there, as opposed to the Washington consensus of economic development, which was you know, uh, free markets, free minds. It's more, hey, um, you really need to keep control, and then not let things get out of hand, and don't be the West. Okay, so uh, thanks a lot. I was thinking more or less if there is an mm. intellectual movement, it's sporting. Uh, uh, don't you think if there is or not? Is there an intellectual movement? Yeah, in China, sporting to the, uh, around the world. Right, I think I just answered that, mm. right? Come discuss with me later, but let the next person ask, but I think no. It's not an intellectual movement being exported, it's hey, we got things right and we should be the authority. Next. Uh, throughout the history you mentioned, uh, what measures, if any, has China taken in, uh, to prevent immigration of its citizens? Well, you know, it's, it's funny. Back uh, the first time uh, President Reagan met with Deng Xiaoping, he said, I am going to argue for, for human rights, right? He's got his human rights agenda. He was early in his presidency, and he, he sat down with Deng Xiaoping, and he said, we want you to be better on human rights and let your people go. Don't do, you know, don't, don't prevent them from leaving. And Dung said, how many do you want? I'll give you a million tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and then Reagan went like this, right? Um, so the immigration out of the PRC is not as constrained as a lot of people think. It certainly wasn't. It's gotten a little tighter. Um, but they absolutely like sending people to foreign universities to get knowledge, to make money, uh, and bring value back to the PRC. People who are not being out, because you still have to apply for a passport, and uh, part of the review of that passport is um, you know, political reliability. And so there are people whom they actively try to stop. right? If they think they're going to go paint uh, the PRC in a bad light, that they'll try to prevent from going over, overseas. Um, Uyghurs, of course, are tightly controlled. Uh, just in general, because they're worried about what they'll say. They're worried about information getting out. But the average middle class upstanding citizen with a good credit score, here's your passport. Go. And uh, when I was living there, and this is, this is a while ago, 2001, 2002, the biggest obstacle to any Chinese immigrating to the United States or even visiting or going to school in the United States is the United States of America. Because we only let so many people in now. So immigration reform, bring more people here, let them be free. Go. So I noticed something about Russia, and I'm wondering if there are parallels in China. Um, there are certain very specialized, highly technologically advanced industries in Russia where the CEOs and the directors have 
basically immunity from the government because the government knows that they cannot control that industry. It's too reliant on the market and specialized knowledge to, to function. Um, is there something similar going on in China where certain people might have immunity from the government because of their, their, uh, their field that they're in? Jack Ma, oops. <laughs> no. And I don't know as much about Russia, but if they really made Putin mad, do you really think they're, they're immune? I'm guessing not. In, within the PRC, nobody is immune, right? It is, the, the, the party has objectives, the party is to remain in control. If you are a threat to that, economic consequences be damned, right? The power matters. The economy, while it certainly helps that power when it's going well, if it's a choice between our power and our authority and economic viability, goodbye economy. Matter of fact, the party has been explicit in this uh, on a few occasions, um, especially referring to Taiwan, right? Because absolutely, if an armed conflict takes place over Taiwan, the PRC economy is going to suffer massively. Everyone's economy is going to be hurt. Theirs is actually going to be hurt worse. And they, they're on the record explicitly. That's temporary. Taiwan is eternally part of China. We will suffer any burden, and the party will suffer any burden to stay in power. So at the end of your very engaging talk this morning, you pointed out all the problems China is now facing and the next great leap forward that's coming. So if you could kind of predict um, what are the prospects of China and its place in the world sort of in the next, you know, uh, short term, but also long term. So the economy is going to continue to struggle. Their, um, their economic system without some serious changes is not going to meet their requirements in the years ahead, but it's not going to be a very quick blow up, right? From our perspective, it's sometimes difficult to grasp, especially when we see protest or we see that, oh my God, they're taking away online learning from middle class families. That's huge, that's important. The average person in the PRC, gross generalization, thinks that Xi Jinping is doing a wonderful job and he is doing what a leader of China should be doing. He is keeping the order, right, and ensuring that we are prosperous. That second part's the issue, right? But to what extent, if, they're, if they become less prosperous, is that Xi Jinping and the party's fault? A lot of the, uh, the way that they shape news is very focused on all the good things are the result of the party, all the bad things are the result of some other bad actor. This is why even when something bad happens, like an outbreak of some rare disease in Wuhan, who's at fault? There were local party officials that did not do their job. And so we're going to ax them. They're gone. Xi Jinping is going to make sure everything's all right. And everything's all right now. Trust me. Right? Everything's all right. And so um, the peasants are upset because land was misappropriated in, in this village. We fire the local party chief. The party is doing their job. And so this, hey, is it going to fall apart tomorrow? I don't think it's going to fall apart tomorrow. Um, when does the party ossify and, and not serve to meet the needs of those people? I think it can drag out a little while. I think it's going to be less strong over time as that, as that economy falters. Um, and, and in some sense, that's where the danger is, right? Do they then lash out in an attempt to hide problems at home? And that's what, what people worry about. Um, very costly, obviously. Um, like, for example, Taiwan. A lot of people fear they'll lash out at Taiwan. But if you lash out at Taiwan and you fail, you now look like a failure as well and could get undermined. So my prediction, to the extent that it is, is you're going to see a slow uh, economic decline, but the party's going to continue to be supported for, for several more years. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, my reading of what China's up to is that they don't want a war. They don't really want to like invade other countries. They just want to like slowly bide their time, grow their economy, grow their influence, grow their military, grow their technology to the point to where they might be so big to where like 
no one will really like criticize them anymore. And that's like their fantasy of like, they'll become the world's hegemony without necessarily expanding their borders. Um, to what extent, like, what do you think of that? Uh, to what extent are you concerned about it? And to what ex what do you think we can necessarily do about it? I, I worry that like a lot of our like senior leaders don't, or, or just a lot of like our governing officials don't even know what to do about that, if that's their strategy. So the PRC, you know, she and the party, do see the world as properly a moral hierarchy. And there's only one country that's qualified to be at the top of that hierarchy, according to them, right, which would be the PRC. They have taken a long view and have purposely not moved too quickly for reasons I discussed uh, four years ago, uh, videos online, if you're interested, um, that, um, that they're moving slowly towards that. So in that sense, I would agree with you, right? They just want to have people defer to them. They don't need to control and they would disagree with the word hegemony. Hmm. It would be accurate, but they would disagree with it. Um, they see it as, we are being proper leaders, we are providing proper guidance, and people are complying because it's right for them to do so. And I think an analogy is the one belt, one road, right? For all the press it gets for a variety of reasons, it's ultimately a narrative tool. And the narrative that it seeks to, to push is that the PRC is the country that is setting the rules for the future of international economic discourse. Get on board. So that is their goal. Do I think we need to necessarily be afraid of it? I actually do not, um, for a couple reasons. Uh, one, the system is not as good has has free minds and free markets, and over time it shows itself to, to not be as good. Um, we have gotten into the habit in the United States of responding to PRC actions, right? They have a one belt, one road. What are we going to do to counter it, right? They have a fancy new missile system. What are we going to do to counter it? Where are the United States' interests in that, right? And we've, be, we've allowed ourselves to become second-handed in that regard. The way to counter uh, a rise in uh, PRC growth and an uh, international system that proposes to challenge us is not to counter that system. It's to ensure that we build ours and that we push our values for the right reasons because they are values and because they are good by trading freely by being responsible, by partnering with those who have shared interest. And so I think with the right policy, there's nothing to be afraid of. Um, I've been advocating for this heavily. The uh, US bureaucracy is slow to change, and I don't think I'm any longer the only person advocating for this. And if you look at some of the statements um, in the latter Trump and early Biden, uh, there are some things within uh, policy vis-a-vis -vis China that are improving and focusing on what we want. I think a lot of them have not been executed so well, uh, but the idea that we need to look out for the U.S. interests and just pursue what's good for us and our people is really the key answer, because for all our problems, it's still the best here. Yeah. Thank you. Great talk. Again, thank you for your talk. Um, you did not get into external threats to China, and I realize that's a massive subject, yes. so I won't ask you to get into it heavily, but even their neighbors, uh, Japan, Korea's, can you give a little information on how China perceives those countries, and are there external threats, and do they deal with them in the same way that they deal with the native people? So... It's interesting the way you phrase that. Um, there are very few and very weak external threats to the PRC, right? It is sitting in a pretty comfortable place, actually. They've settled their disputes along most of their borders. Um, regardless of what they might say, the United States has no claim on them or territorial claims. You know, Japan is not a threat as long as they don't push on Japan. There, there really are not direct threats from a, a geopolitical standpoint. They would not agree with that in total, uh, and certainly not publicly, right? But that is generally the case. The, the threats are what undermines legitimacy of the party. 
So the external threat is excuse me, ideologically, right? Is ideological rather. And they are very afraid, paranoid, about the effect of Western ideals on their populace, which is why you've seen this increasing move towards um, uh, information control. And in fact, a few years ago, there's an internal party document that, that managed to leak called Document Number Nine, which basically declares that uh, international norms and values as like their number one threat to the party's power. They fear the ideas, and that if those ideas corrupt, in their view, the way that people in the PRC think, then their days are numbered. That's the real threat. It's the ideas. And the military stuff, geopolitical, frankly, except for when they push out on things, it's pretty peaceful in that region. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.